All right, let's take our Bibles out, and we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 16. Last week we focused on Abraham and Sarai. They had a, a real lapse in faith, and it was a doozy. And it invited problems into their lives and the lives of their descendants through generations upon generations. But, you know, there's some things that are not to be missed in there in the life of Hagar as we look at her this week as well. And we're going to see some, some dealings with Hagar that are impactful in her life and impactful in ours as well. Let's start in verse 7. It says, And the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Birlahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. I remember one time when I was a pretty small child, I had a little conflict with my mom, and I felt that I was being very unjustly treated, and so I decided that I was going to leave. And so I packed my bag, and I think it's the same incident that my mom told me recently about that she looked in my bag later and I think it was a whole bunch of pairs of socks. So I was good in the sock department apparently. I packed my bag and I hit the road. Well, I shouldn't say I hit the road. I hit the driveway at least. We walked up out of the backyard onto the side yard and about the time I got up onto that part of the yard, I I thought, where am I going? And I didn't have an answer. And so I just wandered around to the side where the driveway was and I just sat there. I never ended up leaving the yard. Because I didn't have any place to go. I didn't think things through very well. Finally, when I decided things weren't quite so bad there as maybe I had thought they were, I went back in the house. But I thought about that this week when uh, I was looking at the life of Hagar again and thinking about things that I'd studied last week and noticed in her as well, is that she's heading off for a place to travel, and but it doesn't look like she's exactly sure where she's going. And you know, sometimes life can be like that. We, we get these times where we feel unjustly treated or we've decided that, you know what, this is for the birds, I'm out of here, but, but wait a minute, where are we going? You see, we see Hagar setting out to be a traveler, but she's not, she's not really traveling well, and that's okay because she needs to be headed right back where she came from, just like I did that day as well. But that's one that I want to consider this morning as we're gathered together around God's Word is I want to consider this idea of traveling well. All of us have a road to travel. All of us have a path through life. And how do we know when we're traveling it well? Well, as we look at Hagar, there's different things that unfold in Hagar's life that also relate to our lives as well. As we look at it this morning, just as she needed to travel well in her life, we need to in ours. The first principle that we see in traveling well through our course of life is to know your itinerary. Itinerary is when you put down your path. I'm going to go from here to here on this day and 
from there to there on that day. And the reason that I bring that up is because that's what I see in the passage. The angel of the Lord comes and finds Sarai by some water on the way to kind of back home to Egypt is probably where she's headed. The angel of the Lord asks her two questions. Now, the angel of the Lord, who is it? Many think it's a theophany. A theophany is Christ showing up before Christ came into the world to be born as a man. The time when Christ came into the world to be born as a man, we call that His incarnation. If we see what it looks like might be Him showing up before His incarnation, that's called a theophany. If we see Him showing up after He has become a man, that's called a Christophany. And so when you see him showing up like to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus or or showing up to John when he wrote the book of Revelation, those are Christophanies, Christ showing up after his incarnation. But there is many times in the Old Testament where it looks like it might be Christ showing up before his incarnation. And so those we've labeled Theophanies. The reason for that is when you look at these places where the angel of the Lord shows up, there are many passages where things that are said show the angel of the Lord to be distinct from God. But there are also many passages that refer to Him as God. And so who is this angel of the Lord, one that is somehow distinct and at the same time God? Well, Christ would fit the bill for that because He's distinct from the Father being the Son, but yet He is God. And so this is very likely Christ coming to Hagar before His incarnation. Well, this angel of the Lord, whoever it may be, shows up and finds Hagar, and he asks her two questions. Where have you come from? Where are you going? I was thinking about that. Those are just two great questions for just about any time in our lives. We can have a tendency to wander through life kind of aimlessly if we're not careful. And those are two good questions that can always help us get some bearings on where we're at. Now, here's the interesting thing about it. As we look at Hagar, notice Hagar only answers one of the questions. The angel of the Lord asks her two questions. Where are you coming from? Where are you going? She only answers one question. She says, I'm coming from my mistress. I'm coming from Sarai because she's not treating me well. I think she's running away from something. She hasn't thought this out very far. She hasn't thought through all the ramifications of this. I think she's dealing with the emotions of the moment. She's being mistreated by Sarai, overlooked by Abram. And they're the two that really that put her in this mess to begin with. And she's like, I'm, I'm not taking this. I'm out of here. And she's just running. She's just running away. Our decisions in life should never be handled by just running away. We should never be leaving something without thinking through where we're going. We should never be running away just because of emotions or because something's difficult or hard or a struggle. And that seems to be exactly what Hagar is doing. Things have gotten hard. There is struggle. There's some injustice definitely that's happening to her and so she's running away that should never be our case when we make a a move or we make decisions in our life we need to make sure that they're not just emotionally charged decisions we need to think things out now think about it what is she running from well she's running from the scorn of of a woman there's no doubt about it i think we can recognize also that she's probably contributed to some of that we looked at the passage last week it says that after she became pregnant she had contempt for Sarai she looked down upon Sarai or literally the the words meant that Sarai looks small to her now and so in other words Hagar's got an attitude look I've accomplished 
Well, you didn't. You couldn't provide for your husband. I could. And so she's obviously got some kind of an attitude going on there, which is contributing to the thing as well. So she's not innocent in the situation, although she is severely treated. But now when we look at it, what is she leaving? Well, she's leaving the mistreatment of Sarai. She's also leaving the covenant family. Remember, God had given Abram a promise. I'm going to make your name great. Lots of descendants. Bless the whole world. All that stuff, right? But remember in the middle of that, God said, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And she is the servant of Sarai. She's like right at the top in the, in the, among the servants in dealing with that family. In other words, nobody has more opportunity than she does to bless Abraham and Sarah. As long as she's blessing Abraham and Sarah, there's going to be blessing flowing into her life by God. And what's she doing? She's running away from that. She's in the one family that God promised through you, I'm going to bless the entire world and anybody that treats you well will get a blessing. And she's leaving that. The first point is we need to know our itinerary. We need to know where we're coming from, where we're going to. The second point is, you know, it's not always easy. Because notice what, what God does with her. The angel of the Lord gives her two commands, return and submit. And so he's telling her to do these two things. Go back to Sarai, go back to who you're the servant of, and submit. So one is a geographical command, right? She can do that just by turning around going back down the road to where she came from. But the second one is more difficult, submitting. Because you see, she was there before, but submitting, that's got to be at least debatable. She has been there. I'm sure that she even followed some commands. She probably was doing things that Sarai told her to do. But she was doing them with this attitude of looking down upon Sarai. And so was she really submitting? Well, she might have been following the commands, but in her spirit, in her, in her heart, was she submissive in the way that she responded to Sarai? And you know what I find astounding about this is that she's just basically told, go back and take it. But she's given some tools because if she goes back and she submits, if she strives to be a blessing to Sarai and a blessing to Abraham, then you would think that some of the injustice would have to kind of naturally go away, wouldn't you? Not always, I guess. But but it's interesting because God takes her and He blesses her. But He says, but you're going back. And you're going to go back and you're going to submit. Which means she's probably going to go back and take some more of what she's already been given. But she's going to do it this time with a better attitude. Now, that's an eye-opener to me. That's humbling. You know what that, that tells me is that there are things in my life that God is more concerned are than He is for my own comfort. And I keep thinking, why would He send her back there? Why does He send her back to that situation? Because, you know, eventually God's going to tell her to go ahead and leave. He's going to tell Abram, go ahead and kick her out. Why send her back? You know, I really can't think of anything other than for her own well-being. She's in a good place there. Because she's in a place that's under the blessing of God. And because God blessed her and gave her a promise of her own that's somewhat similar to Abraham's, I'm thinking God shows that He he cares for Hagar too. He doesn't just care for Abraham and Sarah. He also cares for Hagar. Now, she's not going to be the promise. It's not going to be her child that's the son of the covenant. But God still cares for her. And so sending her back there may be just for her own well-being. But I think part of it might also be for her character. Because as she goes back and she submits, she's going to learn to humble herself. And she's going to become a better person for it. And you know, that's one of the first things that stood out to me about this passage was that God is more concerned for my character than He is for my comfort. 
God would take this person that's a slave who's being mistreated and he would tell her, stay there and do it with a good attitude. Submit to it. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of a time several years ago we were studying through the book of Titus. And in the book of Titus, he starts to give all this instruction to the different kind of different groups of people in different parts of life. And he gets to the slaves. And I was trying to put myself in the mindset of a slave who had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, who had received the forgiveness of sins and the freedom, the freedom that we have in Christ. And I picture myself as a slave there as the letter from the Apostle Paul is being read, the inspired Word of God is being read, and he goes through and he says, I want these people to behave this way and these people to behave this way, and you do this, husbands you do this, wives you do this. And he gets to and he says, servants, slaves. And you know what he tells them to do? He tells them, basically, if I were to put it in a nutshell, be the best slave that you can be. And I remember thinking, really? That was it? Where's the God has a wonderful plan for your life speech? That's the one I'm waiting for. That's the one I want. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Go be the best slave you can be. And I wrestled with it. And I wrestled with slavery concept as well. And of course you have the things that justify what you see in the Bible because the slavery that we find in the Bible in Israel's past was not the slavery that we find like when, like in the U.S., The reason it was different was Israel was commanded not to go capture other people and make them slaves. What slavery was for them, it was was their way of making sure that everybody was taken care of, actually. This is how it worked. If another Jewish person within the Jewish society lost everything, they went bankrupt, then what's left for them? They could hire themselves into servitude to another Jewish person. And they were supposed to be treated well, but they would work for that person as a servant, as a slave. And then the year of Jubilee would come around and set everybody free. Everybody would get to go back to. And so their slavery was with understanding that there was a time to get set free. In fact, some of them even chose to stay in their slavery and they'd have their ear pierced to show it. They'd drive an all through their ear to market. they say, you know what, I don't want to go back to freedom. I failed at that before. I, my business failed or whatever happened. I went bankrupt. And you know what, I'm comfortable here. I'm well treated here. I just want to stay here. And they would pierce their ear as a sign of their wanting to stay there in a permanent situation in that slavery. Later on, when you get to the New Testament, it's a bit different kind of slavery. In the Roman society, a high percentage of the Roman population was slaves. Not all of them were mistreated either. Some of them were tutors that helped teach the children. They had all kinds of varying positions, and not all of them necessarily wanted to leave. And so Christianity, it's kind of an interesting relationship between Christianity and slavery, because Christianity came in and and converted both slaves and masters, and they did not command the masters to get rid of their slaves. And they did not command the slaves to try to get free. The New Testament does tell the slaves, if you can get free, get free. Enjoy it. But if you can't, then be the best slave that you can be. What Christianity did was Christianity did not uh, speak out against slavery, but it gave slavery the tools that would one day undo it. Because it taught Christian masters to look at their slaves as their servants as a brother in Christ and a sister in Christ. And it taught... Christian slaves to care for their master and actually put their heart into their work because they care for that person as a Christian brother and sister in Christ. And you see what happens when two people start to care for one another, the slavery kind of goes away. 
And that's what happened in our societies is eventually with a very different kind of slavery where we did go and kidnap people and bring them and sell them as property. Eventually, even that kind of slavery was undone because Christian people saw the value of other people and said, this has got to stop. But for the time, what does that do to those people? We still have something to wrestle with because God is telling that person, bring honor and glory to me by being a really good slave. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he tells him, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence ignorance and foolish people. He's writing to all the people at this point, And he says, no matter who you are, everybody should submit. Everybody should be subject to the authorities that are in your life. Everybody should have that humility where you willingly subject yourself to whether it's a governor, all the way down to police officers, doesn't matter. Every authority that God put in your life, parents, husbands, every authority that God puts in our life, we need to be submissive. We need to be humble. But then he goes on in that same thing and deals with the slaves. Servants, be subjects to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So this is what Hagar would have been dealing with. Hagar would have been dealing with a master, Sarah, that was unjust, that was treating her unfairly. And even the New Testament principle says the same thing. Serve them well. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And then it goes on from there and elaborates on Christ's suffering for us. He didn't do anything wrong, but he suffered for us. He was put to death wrongfully, unjustly, and he dealt with it. He suffered through it for us. He says that's the example that we're to follow. That is your, notice, your calling, he says. For this you've been called. Do you realize that? Part of God's plan for your life, this wonderful plan, it is a great plan that he has for your life. Part of your, God's plan for your life is for you to go through some sufferings and to endure it well. For you to be treated at times unfairly, but to handle it well. To know Christ better because of following in his example of handling it well even when he was mistreated. That raises a question, what's my life all about? I remember when we were studying through Titus, and I thought, how would this impact me? If I was told, this is God's plan for your life, you're going to be a slave, but you're going to do it well. Is the glory of God worthy of a lifetime of my slavery? You see, that's the whole point. God is such a magnificent being. If our bringing glory to Him means that we suffer for a lifetime, it will have been worth it. It will have been good. It will have been right. That's how glorious He is. You see, we live in a... I think everybody lives in a day and age all down through history where our life has seemed to be our life. And that we need to get what we can, get all the happiness that we can out of life and get all the the pleasures that we can out of life and get as far as we can in life and all the follow your dreams kind of stuff that we hear every year at different times of the year and all those things. that's, That's what our life is about. You know what? 
God calls us to a greater dream. God is such a, an awesome being that no matter, even if it was through pain and suffering our whole life long, it will have been worth it to bring Him honor and glory. And that this is just the tip of the iceberg. If you seek for your happiness and you seek for everything down here, you will miss it there. And if you give it away here, well, then you gain it here and there, actually. But you know what I've found is that when we're willing to humble ourselves and to put others first and to put Christ first and to seek the glory of God first, that even in tough situations, I find myself happy. I find myself joyful because I know I'm doing the right thing. I find when I stand up for myself and I assert my rights and my strength and my power, I find that it's embarrassing and that it's something that should be beneath me. You know, this isn't just for servants and this isn't even just for employees. You know, I've worked for customers before that I've locked horns with a little bit. Most of my customer relationships are great. I remember one time I was scheduled to do a job with one business and before that time came, that certain business had an emergency and I rearrange my schedule so that I could get their emergency taken care of because that was a time-related thing that had to happen. And so I adjusted my schedule and gave them, I think it was two or three days. And then when it came time down the road to do the other job that we'd already scheduled, came up to that time, I wasn't ready. I wasn't done with another job. I called them and I said, you know what? I'm not going to be able to be there when I said I'd be there. I'm a little bit behind. I'm going to have to start it next week after the weekend. A day later, I get a, a letter and a letter is from somebody higher up within the company. And the letter telling me that I had given my word that I'd be there on this certain date. And, and expressing their disappointment and the inconvenience that it's putting them through and all that kind of stuff. And you know what? I was mad. I read that letter. I think I'd seen it at like lunchtime when I came home. And, and I went to the office of the person that wrote the letter. And they were already gone for the weekend. I'm glad they were. And so I went home and I wrote my own letter and I sent it back. In a letter telling them, explaining a little about what construction's like. You take the best guess you can at how much time's going to be to do these projects, but, but things come up and you don't have any control of that. I explained that a little bit. I said, and not only that, but I gave you three days before that bumped me, that interrupted my schedule, and now I'm a couple days from getting to the right start time. And I ended with this. I said, if you challenge my integrity on this again, you can just get somebody else. I was indignant that they would question my character in their letter. You know I was indignant? Because I was arrogant. Plain and simple. You're not going to treat me unjustly and get away with it. You're not going to talk to me like that. Why? Who am I? I could have dealt with it graciously. I could have said, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry we can't get there when I can, but sometimes things come up. and, And you know what? We did give you three days back here that kind of interrupted the schedule. How hard? You just saw how easy that is. That wouldn't be hard. That could have been easily done. But no, my arrogance and my indignation came out. And I wasn't recognizing my place. And the sad part is, it's not just recognizing my place before them as a servant. I'm not recognizing my place as a follower of Jesus Christ. He endured unjust treatment and he did it graciously and with love and compassion. And and I failed in that sense at that moment. What's Hagar being sent back to? She's being sent back to somebody that's going to treat her unjustly. But you know what? God looks down at his servants and says, when I see you be treated unjustly and handle it well, you know what I see? I see my son. Because that's what my son did. And you're my son. You're my daughter. That's what you do. 
Why are you putting up with the unjust treatment? Because of me. He says, being mindful of God. Being mindful of your relationship with Christ. You're doing it because of me. And it says that God is well pleased with that. That brings us to our last point. And my last point is know your travel agent. Uh, sorry about all the travel thing. I know it's kind of corny. And I, in fact, I really wrestled with calling God a travel agent. You know, it's almost like calling him the big guy or something. But I don't mean it frivolously. I mean it because God is directing our steps. He is to be guiding our path. And the, and the point is that when things are hard, that doesn't mean that God is telling you to run away. It doesn't mean that He's ready to lead you to something else. He might be just saying, look, you need to stay there. And if you try to leave, you get back. He is the one that's supposed to be directing our steps. And you know what? Hagar learned some awesome things about God this day. The, the things come out in names. God tells him to, what to name Ishmael. What does Ishmael mean? It means the one who hears. It means God has heard me. God has heard her plight. And that's what God told her to name him. And also, look in verse 14. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. Well, Bir Lahai Roy means a well of the living one who sees me. One of God's names is Jehovah Roy. The God who sees me. David would use it when he gets to the 23rd Psalm. Remember, the Lord is my shepherd. That's the word. Jehovah Roy, the Lord, my shepherd, the one who sees, the one who watches over me. And that's what she says here. She named this the well of the one who sees me. Why? Because he, he's watching over me. David would say, the Lord is my shepherd. He's the Lord who's watching over me, who's, who's shepherding me, who's caring for me. And that's why he leads me beside the still waters. He makes me lie down in the green pastures. So God watches over me by providing for me. God watches over me by protecting me. I will have no fear when I go through the valley of the shadow of death. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so God protects him in that way. That's what she's saying here. This is the God who sees, who watches over me. I think it's why she's able to go back. She can go back to Sarah because she knows that God is watching over her. God is listening. His ear is inclined to her cry as she goes back and submits to Sarah. She's not alone. God is there hearing and seeing everything that's happening in her life. That's why it looks like this one servant, out of all the people in the covenant family, which is only two still, Abraham and Sarah, while they're having a crisis of faith, she seems to have an experience of faith. Because God comes up to her and says, what are you doing? Where are you, where are you coming from? Where are you going? Well, uh, she's running away. God says, you're not running away. I'm going to bless you, and you're going to go back. And you're going to go back better than when you left. Because you're going to submit. You're going to deal with these hardships. And that's going to make you a better person. It's going to point toward, it's going to make you like the person that Christ is going to be. You know, when we look at traveling through this life, we need to be careful in our decisions. We need to know not only where we're coming from, but what we're going to. Her decision would have taken her farther from the covenant. All of our decisions should take us closer to the covenant. It should be operating within that covenant relation, our covenant relationship with God. As we do that, we need to humble ourselves, recognizing that God calls us not just to comfort and ease and peace. He calls us into difficult situations that will develop us and grow us in our character and will reach out to other people. You know, I recently ha- had a, a, a situation that was hard to deal with. 
and was asked, why, why are you doing this? And it was like, well, it's incredibly hard, but it's just something that needs to be done. I'm not enjoying doing it, but if God will use me in it, I'll be glad to participate. God needs you in the hard places in life. He needs His children engaged in the difficult areas in society, in the tough issues, in the hard spots. We should be the last ones that are running from conflict and determined to find comfort. When we are forced in difficult situations or have to handle difficult situations, difficult people, difficult times, God grows us up. He cultivates us in those things. And we get the opportunity to reflect Jesus Christ.